Welcome, Spring Meadows Presbyterian Sunday School. We are discussing heresies, everybody's favorite thing. Um, I've titled this Know Your Heretics as a survey. And as I was just talking with Mark, there are a lot of heresies and we cannot touch on all of them. So this is going to go somewhat quickly. I gave you three pages of notes in the sense that I'm not going to talk about all of these things, but I wanted to give you things you can look at and study further uh, beyond that. So to start, I just wanted a quote from Pascal, among other people. Um, I did not, or I made this longer than usual because I did not have time to make it shorter. So let's start with what is heresy? So to start with that, we need to know orthodoxy anybody know their Greek what ortho means straight. straight or right my father was an orthodontist right or straight teeth doxy is belief we talk about right belief so we have our right teaching our first fill in the blank so as opposed to that heresy is not wrong teaching because there are a lot of wrong teachings that do not broach into the definition of heresy. Uh, heresy actually comes from the Greek word that uh, derives, we, or we, we get the word choice. Um, it is a choice to deviate from traditional thinking in favor of one's own thoughts. Um, it compromises an essential doctrine, losing sight of who God is and how he has revealed himself. So it's not just bad, but it is wrong in essentials. And this is a somewhat fraught term these days because everybody who disagrees with you gets, tends to get labeled as a heretic. And we're trying to distinguish that just because someone disagrees with us about baptism or about some infrasuperlaptarianism or something lapsarianism, all of these distinct or very definite things does not indicate that that's heresy. So heresy choice. And usually these heresies are derived or approached, or the heretics themselves, were trying to answer a real thing or, and a useful thing um, about the Trinity or about Christ and salvation, but in their, in their desire to make it simple, they oversimplified and lost a, a key essential factor. Uh, so they are asking very important questions, which is great. Just asking the questions does not make you a heretic. Getting the wrong answers and teaching those wrong answers that's what makes you the heretic. That's not okay. And as we'll find, or maybe as a large overview, we look at this, it's in God's sovereignty, my blank there in your notes, it's in God's sovereignty these heretics have been used to prompt the church to more clearly define and articulate its doctrine in light of scripture. So when these questions are asked, it is getting the church to really delve into their Bible, to struggle with these issues, these seeming contradictions, and through prayer and through study, come to a more articulate and a more 
uh, usable definition to instruct the church. So before, uh, and the ones that we're covering, I've got 12 in here. The ones that we're covering are mostly from the first through fifth centuries, sixth centuries, and we have one that's post-Reformation or during the Reformation, but especially these early ones, we didn't have the creeds and councils. In fact, the creeds and councils were in response to these questions being asked, these heresies that arose. What the church did have for continuity is the rule of faith, and these were brief summaries of essential Christian truths so orthodoxy is not simply the variance that won out. It's not, it wasn't a popularity contest. It wasn't who had the most political power and they stamped out the people who disagreed with them and called them heretics. It was who could point back to the apostolic teaching, studying scripture, what was scripture. They developed the canon as part of this or recognized the canon as part of this. So in the study of all this, why should we even care? For all of those reasons, we look at, and then we look at this. The so scriptures have ambiguity, and but God has revealed himself to us, and it's critical to honor that re- revelation. Practically, what we believe about God impacts our daily lives, and understanding this historical errors and responses equips us when it resurfaces like the hydra of mythology. These heresies, many of them, you see still today. They're Uh, History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. They may not be the exact same thing, but they are going to have the same underlying issues or underlying questions about who God is. Uh, C.S. Lewis quotes uh, chronological snobbery, or he he coins that phrase. It's an arrogant assumption that values and beliefs of our own time have surpassed all that came before. And he advocates for reading old things, reading current things, so that you're not stuck in the same mindset and same errors of today, thinking that this is all the same, but knowing what people struggled with previously and how they address those will better equip you for uh, and and better inform your thought. So diving right in, first we have the Judaizers. And I put a little uh, summary or one line aspect for each of these. Judaizers we know from New Testament, law prevails. Uh, Christianity is is simply an add-on to the Old Testament uh, Judaism, so we still follow the Old Old Testament law. It's Jesus plus law, Jesus plus circumcision, plus the, um, particularly in in Acts and in uh, the, the Pauline epistles, it was food sacrifice to idols and food customs keeping kosher. Paul has some very strong words for those. Uh, among them, of if you are still clinging to law, then Christ is worthless to you. And he even says, I wish that the Judaizers would go all the way and emasculate themselves. Don't just circumcise, emasculate. Now, he didn't like, and he, t- he used very strong language uh, against that. Um, salvation to the Judaizers rests on obedience to the law. This is nothing new. We still deal with this today. I want to earn my way to salvation, and if I follow these laws, I don't have to rely on grace. I don't have to rely on the gospel or somebody outside of me. But it misses that Christ is our circumcision and atonement. Salvation is by grace alone from Ephesians, from 1 Timothy, uh, that 
didn't work right, uh, from Titus, and then the gospel is for all, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, you can rec- uh, reference all those. Second, we have the Gnostics. This is particularly common still today. This is from first and second centuries. This was not particularly a single uh, person or a single heretic associated with this. It was a number of different Gnostic heresies or a number of different groups that would espouse this secret knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. Uh, so that's where we get this, the term Gnostic. And it was a wide range of belief, but they all had these commonalities. Uh, the deistic God, God winds it up and disappears and is silent. Uh, there's the divine spark in humanity. The cosmology of these Gnostic beliefs were held together by myth. And you can really delve into some weird stuff with that. Uh, and then th- these Gnostic beliefs were parasitic toward other religions. They took things, they, they glommed onto them and borrowed from them, but perverted the, the definitions and words. Uh, so more heavily, the Gnostics were dualists. So matter is evil and spiritual is good or the spirit is good. So it has this dichotomy of the body is evil and things that are not the body, the metaphysical, the um, insubstantial, those things are, are good. And in some ways you can see the desire of the, the ancient world who did not have penicillin, who did not have modern medicine, who did not have all these things. You get a toothache, you, you have large problems just from something like that. Um, death, disease was a common function uh, of life and it was a very short and often brutal life. So by looking to something beyond them and saying, well, the body is the problem, the body is evil. So we can, we can see that, oh, the spiritual is good. So this was early on, first, second century. It's associated with an intellectual elite. So when Christianity had those few intellectual centers that later developed in, in Rome and Constantinople, in uh, Antioch, in Alexandria, this was something that those who were literate, that those who were more intellectual would be attracted to. However, because matter is evil, it had a very deficient Christology. It had this the secret knowledge of you could uh, interpret through a uh, the same words or same phrases that were used in scripture or with the early church fathers, but it was then had to be interpreted by the secret knowledge that only these elite had, and it took away from the sufficiency of Christ as our uh, as our salvation. Particularly if he's not incarnate, if he is only appears to be incarnate. He doesn't have a body. He does not, is not a true mediator between God and man. Uh, you see this modern resurgent with the secret came out in the ni- late 90s, or sorry, early 90s, late 80s maybe. Uh, the power and word of power, the universe is going, if I pray to the universe, it will bring it to me. It gets into a lot of things, but that's a, this special knowledge. So, next, we have Marcion. Marcion was the son of a bishop and another teacher who, 
or and a teacher who knew a lot about his Bible and he threw out a lot of what he about that Bible. He saw that the Old Testament God, Yahweh, was vengeful, was jealous, was all the things that we look at. I think I didn't see it in this places I'd studied, but I remember somewhere else he was essentially arguing that the Old Testament Yahweh was the devil and that there that was not a good thing. And then Jesus came in the New Testament and said, or came to counteract that Old Testament um, deity. So there's two different gods that are opposed to each other. Um, he had this extreme dualism between the Old and New Testament, and he was considered the arch heretic for almost a century after his death. There's massive amounts of literature against this heresy, arguing or, or showing that it was a very common, very popular thing that needed to be addressed within the church. So instead of attempting to reconcile apparent differences between Old Testament and New Testament, Marcion just drew the line and said, oh, they're different. As a result, he was very radically anti-Jewish. He wanted to strip every aspect of Judaism out from Christianity. Uh, Tertullian summarizes that Marcion's special and principal work is the separation of the law and the gospel. Well, we talked about the rule of law previously. This is mid-2nd century. Marcin died in 160, and he was the first to really create his own canon. At the time, there was a group of letters that were passing around with the churches, but there was no officially recognized canon. So as a result of this, the church did a few things. They, they were prompted to recognize this core canon of New Testament books and to acknowledge or recognize the Old Testament is part of the canon of Scripture. It showed that faith for the Christian needs to reconcile both the wrath and the love of God, and it underscored importance of history for Christian faith, not fate. So because Marcion was a, was showing that Jesus was a separate God. Um, he also, in this, uh, well, we could do it in the next one, the docetist, he, was, he denied the humanity of Christ. Salvation was only for the soul. He had that dualism of matter is evil, spiritual is good. Uh, one of the things that Tertullian, one of his main critics, Origen also jumped in there, but Tertullian argued against Marcion that he had no connection to apostolic authority. The things he was teaching were not consistent with that original rule of law. So they were tying, whereas tradition is not the most important thing, it is important, and you, by whose authority do these, these teachings or these uh, philosophies, theologies come? Fourth, we have the docetists, that Jesus only seemed to be human. Docetism derives from the Greek verb to seem or to appear. Jesus was totally divine, but only appeared to be human. So this creates some pretty significant issues with, again, Christology and soteriology of if Christ was not human, how could he be our true substitute on the cross? 
this was not espoused by specific or associated with specific leaders, but it was found woven throughout other heresies and other uh, theologies. You found it within the Gnostics. You found it within, maybe not so much the Gnostics, but Marcion laid on this. Uh, Manny later got into this. So you have, at the beginning, in these first couple centuries, before the creeds are developed or recognized, you will have the these Trinitarian, they're really arguing, they're, they're trying to figure out who God is and how do we define, how do we understand and recognize so that we can love him. And then we get into Manny in the third century. He was a... So Manichaeanism is one that I've heard of, that I knew of, but as I dug into it more and more, it is just a weird cosmology. They get into the syncretism of, of Christianity, uh, Persian Zoroastrianism, and then as it moved eastward through being persecuted by the Christians and persecuted by the, the Persians, moved in and started picking up Buddhism, parts of Buddhism. So it was attractive because it had this ordinary aspect of salvation for people by efforts of others kind of similar to what we want, but the way that it would do this is the divine got in, the cosmology, the divine got into this battle and sent what they called, what he called primal man down to earth, and primal man lost that battle, was trapped, didn't know who he was, so he had amnesia or some sort of sense there, and the goal of this theology and how you earned your salvation or the salvation was earned for you is that that divinity needed to be released. And it was released by eating. So it, they were ascetic. Um, they believed that, at least from the elite side, you had these, uh, where did it go? You had the, uh, the elect and you had the auditors or the hearers. So the ascetics, the elect, did not have children because having children would be trapping more of the divine rather than releasing it. Uh, the auditors did have children, but they tried not to. Uh, and then they would financially and support others or s support those elect so that they could be ascetics and they could eat vegetables and release the divine. But this was very popular. Um, it stripped God of omnipotence. It denied the Old Testament. Uh, there was no incarnation because incarnation is bad. Once again, matter is bad. So why would God become matter as a good thing? We're trying to reverse that trend. And it gave you a way to either as an elect to earn your own salvation or as an auditor to support those who were earning salvation on your behalf. That's a fantastic question. If you were in a position where you could be ascetic and that appealed to you and there were enough people around you to be an auditor, great. I, I don't know how he made those distinctions. <laughs> um, the, the blank on this one, salvation is equal to separation. Uh, because that divine spirit was trapped, it needed to be released. Uh, Sibelius, 
Sibelius, uh, was modalism refined. So he was not the first modalist, but he was the most intellectually uh, coherent of them. And we still get, as we move into what is the Trinity, and this is now second, third centuries, trying to define the Trinity. It's been, it's not a word that's in scripture. It is a concept that is drawn from that, arguably with, with strong support, but there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of things that we can apprehend. We can know what the Trinity is, but to fully comprehend is beyond what we can do as humans. So several of these are, uh, th these following heresies are attempting to define or simplify or make this accessible to the laity rather than it simply be a uh, rather than it simply be a elite understanding or inaccessible theology. So Sibelius, Sibelius had a Sibelius is a composer. That's why I keep getting these confused. Uh, Sibelius was he had the analogy of, of the three different modes of God in the Trinity, but still one essence. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, really are just three different hats or masks worn by the one essential God as the situation dictates. So you or the three-leaf clover, where they're just different parts. You've got various forms of modalism. Today we have and you still hear this talking to people about what the Trinity is or being, trying to define what the Trinity is. Oh, it's like water. You have the liquid, you have the solid ice, you have the, the water vapor. They're all one essence. Those are just modes of the one thing looking different at different times. And Mark, if you want to talk a little bit about the social Trinitarianism, this might be a good place to, to jump in on that. definitely mysteries here. 
United in purpose. Right. So I had not heard that one articulated, but I have definitely run into that uh, in talking with people. So with Sibelius, again, he was, he had good desires here. He wasn't trying to be a heretic in the sense of, oh, I'm going to lead the church astray. He wanted to show continuity with Judaism. He wanted to simplify this arcane or difficult uh, doctrine of the Trinity for those who are uneducated. This is second, third century when he, right, right at the turn of the third century, most people did not read at this point. So it was only something that was preached and discussed, but people could not read for themselves, and he wanted to make it graspable. Uh, but C.S. Lewis has a, uh, a quote that I found, and by the way, I took a lot of this is this overview from Know the Heretics by Justin Holcomb, which found, I found to be very useful and very accessible. It's 120, 130 pages, and I recommend you guys pick it up as part of their No series. But Lewis has a quote that good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Just some of the issues with Sibelius' modalism, um, how can God love himself if... There is just different modes. How can the, f the, if you're just, oh, I love this mask while I'm wearing this mask, or the, the interaction of, if there's not three different persons, how is there a relationship between them? And then who did Jesus pray to? Did God the Father die on the cross? What, if, it ha if the Son is just one manifestation or one snapshot of that mode of, of God, the, the one God, what happened at that point on the cross? Then we get into Arius, which is now 4th century, whose motto was, there was a time when Christ was not. So this argues that Christ was a creation. It was a creation before time, that the Logos did exist and was part of the creation of the world, but was a created and derivative being of the Father. Uh, Arius was a presbyter, in Alexandria, which is what became one of the four major centers of the early church. Uh, he denied the deity of Christ by asserting that the Logos was a created thing before time. And he's attempting to reconcile the immu immutability or the unchanging nature of God and the impassibility, not impossibility, with the incarnation and passion of Christ. So how could something that is immutable, something that cannot change, how can it become flesh? that how do you square the circle with that? And there are, there's a lot of ink spilled on that. This is, the way he did it was saying, oh, well, he wasn't actually God. Uh, and then the impassibility, the un inability to, to feel or to suffer, uh, how does that work with the passion of Christ? So it's the same root, the pass and impassibility and passion don't, uh, don't mix well. So this rise in popularity of Arius prompted the Council of Nicaea in 325, which formulated what became the, the, the Nicene Creed. So it was still one of the most foundational creeds that we have, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Yet 
their ruling against and their verbiage to counter Arius only seems to catalyze the heresy's popularity. And it took subsequent years with the rise of Athanasius in the, as Bishop of Alexandria that he argued and wrote many books, five, six, seven books against Arius and his controversies um, where it's only God can save humanity. It cannot be a creation that can save creation. And historically, the, Jesus has been worshipped by the early church. So all this time, if he is just a creation, have we been committing idolatry? So using those main points and others, uh, he was very successful in getting exiled five times. Athanasius in trying to fight the Arians. So that, that it went far up into the political nature uh, or it, it took hold in the political elite and so Athanasius in trying to cling to orthodoxy and better define orthodoxy and articulate it he still would not surrender the deity of Christ and of the Trinity and as the of the 46 or 47 years he was bishop in Alexandria 19 of them he was actually in Alexandria the rest of them he was in exile because a new, new emperor would come or a new uh, other political and they would exile him again saying no this isn't right so it took a long time. This, was, this became so entrenched that Christ was a creation. And you'll see Arianism seated in Mormonism, in Jehovah's Witness. Uh, there, this is something that, that pops up and, and still has not gone away. Any questions on these so far? Aside from my confusion of Sibelius and Sibelius. That's right. There'll be a quiz on that later. All right. So these last few here, well, let, let's say I have them more as, as Apollinarius, Pelagius, Eutyches, and Nestorius. With the exception of Pelagius, the other three, Apollinarius, Eutyches, and Nestorius, all were Trinitarian heresies, but they, they all approached it from a slightly different way. So where Apollinarius is in 4th century, and, and these are all kind of 4th and 5th century, and so they're happening and coalescing all together. It's not simply, oh, we move on from one to the next to the next. These are things that take years and decades to address, and they're happening uh, concurrently, or with some overlap. So Apollinarius was leaning on the definition of Platonic personhood as first, or one body, you have a sensitive soul, and you have a rational mind. So he said that Christ was fully God, but he was only partially human. The logos, the, the divinity, overtook or replaced the rational mind of Jesus. So Jesus had a human body, had a human sensitive soul, but he had the divine mind. So he's two-thirds human, one-third God. And it, this is another attempt to try and solve how Christ fits with the attribu divine attributes of immutability and passibility and omniscience. There's uh, comments where, or, where Jesus said, I do not know the, day, the hour when um, the Father comes. Only the Father knows the hour. Well, is, so does that mean God is not, or Jesus was not omniscient? 
the person, the, the human mind, so, or he solved this by saying the logos, the, the divine nature was, the, or the divine took, the divine took over the mind, but the rest was human. Yet by denying the full humanity of Jesus, the efficacy of the atonement's undermined, leading to a deficient doctrine of salvation. So if Christ was not fully human, again, he cannot be our human substitute and pay for our sins. And I'm going to skip Pelagius for now. Uh, Eutyches, 5th century. So he is a... <laughs> the book was interesting. and said if you could pick one word to uh, discuss or to summarize Eutyches was drama. And there was a, a bunch of political intrigue. You have, shockingly, people are sinners. And they're even church people. So the head, there, there was a large or a significant ongoing dispute between the, the intellectual center of Antioch and of Alexandria. Antioch was more on the God, if I can get this right, Antioch is more on the God flesh, whereas uh, Alexandria was on God-man. So they, uh, Antioch tended toward the definite, or tended toward the natures of Christ, the human and divine natures, being together, whereas the, and, and that tended toward a, the heresy of, say, so Eutyches here, it's a, it's a new nature. It red or yellow plus blue equals green. It was a drop of wine in an ocean of water. So it became an ocean of the divine. So Christ was a different, a third way. He wasn't human. He wasn't divine. Do you have a question? Okay. Yeah. Okay, the, the consubstantiation. <laughs> they called it consubstantiation. So Eutyches, and he had this Eutycheanism, but these two, uh, Antioch and Alexandria, were, were jockeying for position, or jockeying for, at the time, well, political and ecclesiastical power were almost synonymous. So Eutyches was a, a fairly or unknown monk who shows up, writes a little, short little book, well, most ancient books are short, and the 
Dioscorus, the, the Alexandrian bishop, uses this to essentially set up the, uh, the Constantinople bishop and tries to get him labeled as a heretic. So there, there's a lot of intrigue that goes on there. Uh, but as a result of this, um, Pope Leo, or was really just the bishop of, of Rome, but Leo the Great are, uh, writes what he called the tome, or what was later called the tome, a persuasive argument for the need to distinguish these two natures, otherwise you get another form of docetism where Christ only appeared to be human but was divine uh, and runs into those same issues of can a non-human really satisfy uh, the, our, our salvation. Uh, the, the result of this, after a council, uh, a second council that was it's called the Second Council of Ephesus, was later called the Robbers' Synod because the Alexandrian bishop showed up and nobody else was there. He kicked out the people who he didn't like and they made their uh, result and then everybody else said, no, that doesn't work. So they came back and there was a lot of things going on. But it resulted in what the definition of Chalcedon, Chalcedon. And that had, they put four fences around these two natures. They were without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation, the, the divine and, hu and human natures of Christ. Because if Christ loses these, this, his human and divine identity, he's not truly our representative. And then on the other end of that, Nestorius was the two natures, two persons. So they were defined, they were distinct natures, but they were not one person. You had the human Jesus and you had the divine Jesus in the, the human body, so it would get to, this is how he addressed how Jesus was ignorant of certain things. It also protected the impassibility of God and the suffering of Christ. Um, Cyril, the Bishop of Alexandria, expressed concern that the human person, uh, I messed that one up somewhere. Human person would observe the dignity of Christ. Um, I'd have to think about what that came through. So the first council at Ephesus, this, so this happened a little bit before Eutyches, the first council at Ephesus considered Nestorian Christology the beginning of a slippery slope that could disconnect Christ from his divinity. So they, they came down fairly hard on him that it has to be one person. It's two natures, but one person. But it wasn't much clearer, which led to some of these other ones, unlike Eutyches, who came a little bit after that. And then we jump into Pelagius. So Pelagius was a fifth century monk. He was born in 350 in Britain, which is a Roman outpost, essentially. And he moved from Britain to Rome to teach uh, scripture. And when he got there, he was, a pr he was aghast uh, with the, the laxity or the moral laxity and the the way that now that, that Christianity was not a persecuted sect, the Constant, Constantine had become a uh, become converted, and it became popular and and chic to be a Christian. You had more Christians in places of power. It was because it was not persecuted. People did not uh, adhere to some of the same things in the same way. So he looked at, uh, hey, we, we've got to get morality back into scripture or we're going to lose all of this. 
uh, the secularization of the and the rise of Christendom. Christendom was not a thing before Constantine, that the kingdom of Christ on earth. Uh, so his premise is that God never commands anything impossible for humans to obey. So in Sermon on the Mount, where it says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, because God does not command us to do something that we cannot do, it must be possible for us to be perfect. And that set off the chain of events that are the, the logical chain for him, that there is no original sin. That while Adam sinned and Adam fell, that happened to Adam. That does not doom or affect our ability to make right decisions. And from a reform perspective, and Tim has hammered in this, and most have hammered into this, our free will is still there, but it is incapable of choosing God because it is broken. The uh, Pelagius took issue with Augustine's prayer. They were contemporaries, and Augustine became his primary opponent. Uh, but in his confessions, Augustine says, command what you will and give what you command. Whereas Pelagius argues that human nature is essentially good. And this is in, in light of those heresies of dualism, Manichaeanism. So dualism being that matter is evil, body is evil, spirit is good. Pelagius is arguing, no, the body is good, human nature is good. <clears throat> we can make these decisions. It is in your power and it is your responsibility to follow the law as Christians. Uh, Manichaeanism, or Manichaeism, as we talked about, that was something that his opponent, Augustine, was actually a disciple of early. So he was suspicious of that being, that having been left over from um, Augustine's days as a Manichaeanist or Manichaeist to say that, oh no, the human nature is evil or human nature is bad and broken. No, human nature is good, Pelagius argues. But we get Pelagianism of you have the ability to follow God and you have the responsibility to follow the law of God and if you don't, you are not saved. Uh, so that is just self-justification on steroids. Yes? We have Explain to me what semi-Pelagianism, how does that actually get defined? It means I can choose God. That's just... But if you can choose God, isn't that Pelagianism? <laughs> no. They're just saying, Pelagius says whatever God commands man can do. Okay. We can obey the law. I don't think semi-Pelagian would say we can obey the law, but we, we don't have a nature that's turned away from God. Or we still have the ability to have a free will to choose God. It's not... What, what Tim teaches. Okay. Because so the, the analogies I've heard, bad analogies, there's lots of those, that semi-Pelagianism is the, you're drowning, you're, you're struggling at the surface of the water, God throws you the, the life vest or the, the, the lifesaver, you just have to reach out that last 1% and grab it. But God does most of the work. Well, if humans are still doing 1%, they're still doing work and it's still on them for salvation. And that just, it seems fairly binary to me, but we don't have time to go too much into that. Um, so personal morality is the basis of salvation. Christ's sacrifice was an example, but it was unnecessary because we can work our way to salvation. 
without it. Uh, and lastly, is for this, just briefly with Sosinus, was 16th century. So this is now during the Reformation period. And he is what was feared by both the Roman church and the reformers. If you give people scripture in their own language and tell them that they can interpret it, you're going to get all sorts of things come up. And this is one of those all sorts of things. You had uh, Munster that went the way of uh, taking over and end up the, the German authorities went in and had to essentially burn the city out. Uh, and then on the other end, you had Sassinus, where he argues that human reason is the final arbiter of truth. Not tradition, not supernatural revelation, just me and my Bible, hyper-individualism. Because he argues that essence is equal to person, the, the Trinity is not a thing. It's just there is one God. It's this radical oneness of, of God and the adoptionism. That's to say that Jesus was a man that was adopted by God and became human and became um, God. Logos is simply an office that Jesus held. It's a it's a role or a position. It wasn't the person, a divine person. And that the the Holy Spirit was an outflow of God with no distinct personhood. It was an emanation or a virtue or a power. And because of all this and the Christology, because Jesus was not divine, his death was just an example. And Christ is only human, it did not affect salvation. It fixes the divine cosmic, cosmic, cosmic child abuse, that how could God do this to his son? Well, it wasn't really his son. It was somebody that he was fulfilling a role, and this was a good thing for humanity, but not a necessary thing. So with all of that, those are one of or 12 of probably hundreds of heresies. They're the early ones. There's lots of ones that came up in between as Mark jumped in on. Uh, but I found this Russian proverb, dwell on the past and you will lose an eye. Forget the past and you'll lose both eyes. It's important to understand what went on. Like I said in the introduction, to to know the history, to know the rise of these things and how they were addressed, how what the, the long-term or downstream effects of those are, so that we can be prepared to defend against them and defend orthodoxy. And, th and it's been argued, if there were so many different controversies, so many different ideas about God, what if all of them are right? Or what if all of them have a seed of truth and none of them are actually right? And why can't we all be brothers? Can't we just get along? But Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength with our whole person requires or includes loving God with our minds and understanding who God is. We can't love somebody we don't know. God has revealed himself. And one of the things we believe, and I think most believe, even within the heretics, there is a perfect orthodoxy. There is a perfect doctrine in the mind of God. And we simply do not know or understand or grasp the whole of it, but it, are, it can be our life's work to be studying it and, and doing that. Due to the corruption of our nature, it's going to be messy and it's going to be incomplete. It's still important to do, but it's not going to be easy. The Nicene Creed, which is 
determined or developed at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and then later at Chalcedon, was um, added to for the Holy Spirit, uh, is established as, our, as a reliable litmus test. It's been throughout the iterations or throughout the, the eras of the early church and the medieval church, all have, all orthodox believers or orthodox churches have subscribed to and recognize this as a summary and accurate understanding of how God reveals himself in scripture. And when something is laid up against or, or side by side with the Nicene Creed and we see that there are discrepancies, we really need to understand what those are and be wary. And then closing, he says, or in, in this book, he talks about, actually I think it was a quote from somebody, while technically orthodoxy is the opposite of heresy, a more practical and positive category would be confession as the opposite of heresy, where we stick to the, the, the historic confessions of the church, the creeds and confessions, and because after all, even the demons have right belief, and that doesn't make them Christians. So, any questions? I think we're almost out of time here, or we are out of time. Yes, sir. Salvation. All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have to learn about you, to learn about the eras of the church and the, the struggles and under, desires to know you and articulate um, the knowledge that you have revealed about yourself better. Um, we've seen the errors on each side and we think that you have a consistent witness uh, to inform us, to guide us, and that we can, as new heresies and new things and new ideas pop up, nothing new under the sun, we can look back and see how the church and how you have worked in history to give us clarity and guidance. Thank you for your spirit, and may you be with the pastor as he is delivering the message today as we and the congregation worships together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.